I think that's what people are looking for more and more. Is, you know, uh, like come to wine country and actually be in the vines or be near nature or get a sense of how, how things grow and who's behind making the wines. You're listening to Everyday Food and Wine, the show about innovators, creators, and experts in the fields of food and wine. On today's episode, I sit down with an incredible wine writer, author, and contributing editor of Wine Enthusiast Magazine, Virginie Boone. Virginie has been with Wine Enthusiast since 2010, and she is the lead contributor on the wines of Napa and Sonoma. Sonoma-based Virginie began her writing career in 1997 with Lonely Planet Travel Guidebooks, contributing to titles on South America, Northern California, France, and America's Deep South. Virginie is also the author of Napa Valley and Sonoma, Heart of California Wine Country, and she's also a regular panelist and speaker on wine topics in California as well as beyond California. On this episode, we sit down to discuss all things Napa and Sonoma. We discuss everything from the difference in soils and climates within Napa and Sonoma, some of the hidden treasures you don't want to miss out on, and the differences to be on the lookout the next time you go to purchase a bottle of wine. We will also discuss how Wine Enthusiast comes up with its famous ratings of various wines. Virginie, thank Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I am I am in my house in Sonoma uh, right now as we speak. Awesome. So you've been a wine enthusiast for about a decade and are known as an expert on wine, especially from Napa and Sonoma Valley, where you live. Uh, what drew you to these regions, and why not something like more traditional? I guess like Bordeaux or Burgundy. What was the draw of Napa and Sonoma for you? Well, I would say, I mean, I, I, as you could maybe tell from my first name, I am half French. My mom grew up in France and, um, I have a lot of relatives in France still. And so that was always a reference point for me growing up. So I certainly do love Burgundy and Bordeaux and have spent time in France getting to know the wines and have enjoyed and still enjoy drinking those wines. Um, so it's, it's, it remains a reference point, of course, when you talk about California wine. But I'm a California girl. I grew up here. Um, my dad was American, and we ended up in San Francisco at the Presidio because he was in the Army. And, um, you know, I, the wine country, Napa, Sonoma, wine country has always been in my backyard. And so over time, I've just kind of gravitated from living in San Francisco to living in Marin, which is sort of between San Francisco and wine country. And then eventually in 2001, moving up to Sonoma full time. And I would say, you know, so it's, it's obviously just kind of know to know where you are and what's in, what's around you as part of the appeal. But, but I do love California's sense of experimentation and entrepreneurship. And I think that you see that in, in the wines here. And I, I think it just makes it really interesting. Definitely. I think that something I find completely fascinating is Today, nearly everyone's familiar with Napa and Sonoma, but it's actually a relatively newly famous wine region. When when did the world take Napa and Sonoma seriously? I mean, it, it was less than 40 years ago, less than 50 years ago. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, the big moment that everybody sort of points to is, is an event called the Judgment of Paris, which happened to in 1976 in Paris and Stephen Spurrier, who is still a noted wine uh, aficionado and writer and ju wine judge, he put together a tasting that I'm sure at the time he felt was fairly innocent. And it was to, to have a group of people, mostly French palates, French people and Englishmen who were used to drinking a lot of French wine, taste uh, some of the classics of French wine against what Steven Spurrier had handpicked from California and California did remarkably well. We won first place in Cabernet on the red side. And that was Stag's Leap wine cellars from uh, Napa Valley. Um, and, uh, and the winning Chardonnay was also from Napa Valley called Chateau Montalena and that Chateau Montalena Chardonnay actually had some grapes from Sonoma. 
Um, so that is kind of the moment that everybody points to when everybody took California more seriously and saw that we, we could make great world-class wines here. Um, so really, yeah, to your point, it, it's relatively new. And even from that 1976 to now, it's taken some time to sort of build an industry that can compete and can offer, you know, sort of this classical representation of wine that we so associate with Europe. Did Was it known that there were going to be American wines in the tasting or was that something that was a surprise? No, I think the tasters were aware that they were tasting California versus France, but I think their assumptions were at the time. I mean, France had hundreds of years of, of historical importance in wine and terroir and families that had been farming the same pieces of land for so long. Um, I think that they just assumed that they would know the difference very easily and that there was no doubt that France would would come out ahead. So that was why it was such a shock. And because it was blind, I mean, they just were tasting what they were tasting. And so there was no disputing it after the fact. Napa and Sonoma, they're also referred to as wine country in the United States, even though they're right next to each other. They're incredibly different from the soil types, microclimates, and other factors that influence the grapes grown. Can you highlight some of the major differences between the two? Because I think a lot of us just kind of cluster them together. Yeah, they do get clustered a lot together, and, and they are very close. I mean, from the window where I'm sitting, I can see the Mayacamas Mountains, which is the mountain range that that is sort of the, the geographic division between Napa and Sonoma. It's what sub, uh, separates the two regions, really. So they are incredibly close. Um, there's some parts of Napa Valley that I can get to faster than parts of Sonoma County because Sonoma County is very big. So, you know, in broad strokes, I would say, you know, Napa is a pretty small region um, land-wise. It doesn't have a very large population. It has devoted itself to agriculture from, all, you know, really the beginning. And um, for that reason, it, it really is very winery-specific. And it has kind of from the beginning been a perfect place for Cabernet Sauvignon and sort of bigger, hardier red wines. And and those are, are what we associate with Bordeaux as well. And that's why they were competing in the, in the Judgment of Paris against Bordeaux wines and, um, and taken, you know, taken very seriously because they were Cabernet versus Cabernet. So Napa remains very uh, devoted to growing and making Cabernet Sauvignon. A lot of vineyard designates that um, are specific to, to Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and that's, that's the majority of what it makes. Sonoma, on the other hand, is for one, a much larger regional area. I mean, just, just land wise. Um, and we, and a, a huge portion of Sonoma County is coastline. So we, we border the Pacific Ocean. And the Pacific Ocean is what makes all the difference in Sonoma in terms of, you know, areas that are really, really quite cool and on the edge of being able to even ripen wine grapes to warmer areas that are closer in climate uh, to Napa Valley. And so they also do well with Cabernet. So Sonoma, really, the strength has always been its diversity. It couldn't grow pretty much every type of grape you can think of. And it also has a vast amount of agriculture that's outside of wine grapes. So there remains a lot of you know, livestock animals and dairy and cheesemakers and produce and seafood because of the coastline. So they they share things, but they also have these differences. And, you know, I mean, there's strength and diversity, but there's also sometimes people don't understand really what Sonoma is about because it's so big. So Napa and Sonoma, they're they're even broken down into smaller subsets called AVAs. Can you go into what an AVA is and why that why they're important? Sure. Yeah, they each have you know over a dozen um, appellations within kind of the larger appellation. So within Napa Valley, there's other appellations that lots of people have heard of from Oakville, where Robert Mondavi Winery started to Stagsleep District, which 
Stag's Leap Wine Cellars obviously was within the Stag's Leap District. And there's areas like Carneros, which are actually both Napa and Sonoma. And Carneros is, is quite cool. It's closer to San Francisco Bay. And so it has, it has better ability to grow things like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, specifically for sparkling wines. Sonoma, probably the most famous appellation within Sonoma that most people know is the Russian River Valley. And that's a large area within Sonoma County. Uh, very cool, pretty close to the ocean, a lot of ocean influence. And so it has become famous over time, specifically for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. But it also has a lot of old vines in Findel. So some of its historical legacy, uh, you know, was based on grapes that Italian immigrants came and planted. I love that. Um, and, and definitely everybody knows about um, uh, Russian River Pinot Noir. It was, does that kind of, is it affected by what you were talking about, about having the cooler climate from the ocean since it is a thinner skin grape? Is that why it is able to thrive there so much better than, say, for example, like Napa, where it is a little bit warmer? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, I mean, obviously, you and I both know, like, there's been gigantic books written about Pinot Noir, because it's so complicated. And it is considered a hard grape to grow. Uh, It can be very delicate, it can be very affected by weather. But it does need some coolness to sort of retain its acidity, which is what people really love about Pinot Noir is that it can have sort of a freshness to it. And it's a little bit of a lighter typically a lighter wine than something like Cabernet. So Russian River has proven over, you know, 40, 50 years now to be uh, really well-suited for Pinot Noir, partly because of the climate. Um, It also is a very diverse area in terms of soil and Gravenstein soils or, or Goldridge soils, sorry, Goldridge soils are sort of what, are most prominent within the Russian River. And that's also what allowed it to be such a successful Gravenstein apple growing region before grapes came. So it's a combination of climate, soils, and then of course, just experimentation over time and what people planted and what what succeeded. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that you've heard about Napa and Sonoma? Well, there's a lot of them. I mean, you know, living here, I think a lot of people get frustrated that people don't don't realize they're two different regions. And so sometimes Sonoma gets lumped into Napa. Sometimes Napa gets lumped into Sonoma. So there's a little bit of that um, just sort of misunderstanding um, from, from wine consumers. But I think, you know, Napa over time has really become known for having pretty expensive wines. And a lot of that has to do with the farming, of course, and, and just the marketplace for Cabernet. Um, So there's a lot of assumptions that Napa is kind of out of reach, that the wines are are very expensive. Uh, A lot of people sort of assume that they're all very heavy and very high, high in alcohol. And all of that does exist in Napa, of course. And many of those wines are beautiful wines. Um, I think what I always try to get people to realize is that there's also wines of great value in Napa, surprisingly, and there's there's diversity in Napa um, when you kind of peel away you know, the, the top layers. There are small producers making all sorts of fun, interesting wines at all different types of prices, and some of the big producers, too, are making wines that people find in supermarkets, and it's, it's just much more readily available and it's at a price point that they can they can enjoy, and maybe then once in a while they splurge on something more expensive. But I guess with Napa, it's always the frustration that it gets painted as one thing, and as you get to know the region, it's just simply not true. And with Sonoma, I would think that's less. There's less perceptions that way. I think people do understand once they get to know Sonoma that it's quite diverse. It offers a lot of great value um, and different styles from light to, to heavier. So I think Sonoma doesn't suffer as much from that perception as it does sometimes just getting lumped in with Napa. 
When I look at a bottle of wine and see Napa or Sonoma, I immediately think of quality wine. However, I've noticed um, increasingly a bottle stating Napa or Sonoma County versus Napa or Sonoma Valley. What does that mean? It seems that that maybe could be kind of misleading consumers and just slapping Napa or Sonoma on a bottle to help market it, but that quality might not be there. Is there the, the big difference between county and valley when when they're marketed? Well, so Sonoma Valley is its own appellation. It's a smaller appellation. Sonoma County really is the entire region. So oftentimes when you just see Sonoma County or Napa County on a bottle or even just California, what that means is that the winemaker has used grapes from a variety of places and so, and oftentimes that's a way to keep costs down or to find more unusual varieties that maybe are harder to find within an appellation. So sometimes Sonoma, like a county designation or a state designation is going to just offer you more value because the great, they, they probably, the winemaker, the producer have been smarter about sourcing grapes and they've gone and found and like maybe cherry picked from sites they like from all different areas. And, and been able to, to make something of, of high quality that just didn't cost them as much to make. So they pass that on to the consumer. The same is true in Napa. And, you know, sometimes it means it's cheaper wine that, that doesn't have as much intention. But I'm finding, especially with some of these smaller producers that I was talking about, that that's the way that they can play with a variety that, that is less easy to find than Cabernet or it's a way for them to make a $40 bottle of wine or a $50 bottle of wine that otherwise would be 150 or 200 um, in you know the, the way that the, the grapes have been costing over the last many years. So I find it just really depends on the producer whether it means it's lesser quality or it's just great value. Pinot Noir is one of my favorite varietals, especially love Pinots from Russian River as well as Sonoma Coast. But I'm also a big fan of Pinots from like Willamette Valley and Santa Barbara. Can you talk about stylistic differences of the different Pinot Noirs from the various places that I just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I don't taste those wines as often as I taste up in Sonoma, obviously. But you know, Willamette Valley certainly in Oregon is a go-to for Pinot lovers. Um, it's a lot of people think Oregon because of, of its climate being much, much cooler and, and maybe a little bit closer to what Burgundy is like, that those wines tend to have a lot in common with Burgundian Pinots in that they can be quite light in style, quite delicate, quite elegant. And for fans of that style, Willamette Valley is an amazing place to to enjoy Pinot Noir. Santa Barbara, I think, has, you know, it's it's got a lot of, of what California has to offer. It has a lot of richness, of course, um, great fruit flavors, but it also, again, another area that's close to the ocean has that acidity. It retains the acidity that we love in Pinot Noir. So it's been actually really cool to see producers that I know and love who do make a lot of Napa Sonoma wines start to expand into Oregon or Santa Barbara. And you'll find that a lot of Pinot producers will make a Pinot from all of those uh, regions. And so it's a nice way to explore them if you already know and trust the producer to say, oh, well, I've always loved their Russian River. Now they're doing a Willamette Valley. I want to try that too. And and kind of have your own comparisons, what you think. But I, I agree. I mean, those are, those are great regions and and it's been fun to kind of watch them develop over time, just like Russian River. That's interesting. I, I actually didn't know that, that they were the same producers, some of them. Do you have any off the top of your head that, that you can mention that are doing fantastic Pinots in Sonoma that are also experimenting in Santa Barbara and Willamette? Well, I mean, one of the first to do such a wide reach was Adam Lee of Siduri. Um, and those Siduri wines uh, are still still pretty, there's still a lot of different areas that he is making wine from. So you can definitely find Oregon. You can find um, not only Santa Barbara, but Santa Rita Hills was one of uh, uh, an early one for Siduri. 
and Santa Lucia Highlands, which is an area we haven't touched on, which is down in Monterey, also very coastal and also making some great Pinot Noir. And, you know, so Siduri for sure is playing around in all those regions. Uh, Walt Wines is another one that sources pretty widely. Um, there's a lot. So I think it's, it's kind of fun. Like if you just, if you find a producer that you like, it's, it's worth looking at kind of what their whole portfolio is and seeing, you know, what other regions they're playing in. But those are, those are the first two that kind of come to mind most, most immediately. So wine enthusiasts ranked William Salem's Pinot Noir from Sonoma as the number two wine of all of 2019. What goes into the rankings and have you tried that particular wine? I, de- I definitely tried that particular wine. <laughs> um, I did and I was very happy for, for it to get a number two spot. Um, so wine enthusiast has reviewers all over the world and we cover, we all cover different regions. So I have colleagues in France and Germany and England and Italy, and then colleagues who cover other parts of California. I have colleagues who cover Oregon, Washington, South America, Spain, Portugal, uh, Australia, New Zealand. So we, we cover the world, Greece, I mean, South Africa, it goes on. Every wine region is represented in the magazine. So all year long, we're, we're all tasting our regions and we're all giving them scores and we're giving them reviews. At kind of around November, when we're pre- preparing for this end of the year issue of our top wines, the tasting department team looks at everybody's wines. I mean, it must just be an impossible task. And what they're trying to do is not just look at, you know, not just rank it by, okay, here's all the wines that got a hundred points or 90 points or whatever it is. They're also looking for geographic diversity in that list and a little bit of accessibility and value. So not just picking the wines that are all, you know, out of reach, such small production that nobody would ever be able to try them, but really trying to offer a list that has those types of gems, but also has something that you might actually be able to order online from the winery itself or you might be able to find at a retail store, or you might, when we're allowed to go back at restaurants, you might find on a wine by the glass list. So having that William Salem Pinot Noir as the number two is actually very cool because they make about, gosh, 15 plus vineyard designated Pinot Noirs. And the one that was chosen was actually from the Russian River And so it was the more accessible one. It was the one that was at a price point that people could feel was attainable. I think, I think that wine retailed maybe for $40, maybe 45 at at the top. Wow. Uh, That's not bad for Pinot. Right. Where some of their single vineyards might be closer to 65 or something like that. So, and it was, and it was made in a slightly larger production so that again, people might be able to find it. Um, and, and we've done that before with other, you know, top wine, top wines in that list, whether they're the number one slot, the number two slot, or they're the number 90 spot, uh, slot. The idea is to give people a list that is somewhat realistic and unattainable, really. So I, that, that wine was, was a great statement of that. It's, it's a producer that has been at the top of its game for a long time, very historic, classic Russian river. And yet they make a wine that, that you can possibly taste in your lifetime. I find your job completely fascinating. How is it being a wine critic? I mean, I know that there are so many different perspectives on the quality of wine. So can you walk me through what you look for when analyzing a glass of wine? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a hard question to answer because it's so it's like so in my head. I mean, we we taste, we taste alone. So we don't do group tasting. So each, you know, if you read a review of mine or one of my colleagues, like we taste it alone, we taste blind. So we don't know the producer. We don't really know much of anything except that it's from our region, of course, and then probably the variety. Um, and you kind of know that it's a fairly recent vintage, right? So that, that's all you sort of know, but otherwise, 
the wines are bagged. You don't know what, what the, who the producer is. You don't know if it's a single vineyard designate. You don't know anything like that. So the goal with that is just take away preconceived notions of, oh, that's a cheap wine or that's an expensive wine or that's somebody I like or somebody I don't. Um, so we all do it that way. So what I'm looking for, I mean, I guess depends on the variety, right? I mean, cab, I'm looking for, you know, and young cab is really difficult to taste for this reason. I mean, you're sort of looking for how it's going to age to some extent. Um, does it have structure for that? You're trying to get past the tannins in a young wine um, to see like what the fruit or spice or herb or earthy components are. I guess, I mean, ultimately, anything I'm tasting, I'm trying to imagine, like, are people going to enjoy this, right? Are they, is this an enjoyable wine? And then what makes it enjoyable? Is it, is it the balance? Is it the acidity? Is it the fruitiness? Is it the richness? Ideally, it's all of those things in, in balance. Um, but it, it also, you know, you're looking for something different in a cab than you are a Sauvignon Blanc or a Rosé or a dessert wine or a sparkling wine. So I think for me, I just try to keep an open mind of like, would somebody like this and why would they like that? And try to describe it as best I can of, you know, it's, it's fruit components for sure, but then also it's freshness or richness. And then I really like to talk about texture um, as much as I can in wine, because I just find texture really interesting. And I think sometimes it gets lost in all the fruit descriptors and other descriptors, but I really like texture. And I think it says a lot about how you're going to enjoy a wine and, and maybe the care that went into making the wine. Interesting. I know that vintage variation is a huge factor in the quality of the wine. And for Napa, love 2007, 2007 and 2013, but I've heard that 2011 was considered an off vintage. Can you explain what factors are considered in regarding uh, an amazing vintage? And also, do you have any personal favorite vintages that you would recommend from Napa or Sonoma? Yeah, I think vintage is super interesting because it is something that, that is just a given when we talk about wine is, is how is the vintage and, and, and does it, will that vintage age? Will we look back on it as a classic vintage? And I think that was something that we absolutely inherited from kind of the old world, um, perspective and, and places like France where you could kind of make proclamations about a vintage based on weather and sort of other conditions. I think in California, it's really hard because we have so much variation, not just in what we're growing and where we're growing it and how we're growing it, but then you have so much winemaker influence of when they're picking. So if they pick, you know, a little less ripe or a little more ripe, I mean, those things are they're not the same when you compare a vintage. So I, you know, I know that we have to talk about vintage, um, but I think in California, it's just not the same as, as maybe some of these other old world regions that have always talked about vintage. So, and also because we're spoiled in California for the most part in terms of weather, like we don't tend to have hail and, and rain and some of the challenges that uh, places, other places do, including places like Oregon, that can affect a vintage in terms of quantity and quality. So... Like you bring up 2011, and the reason, at least in Napa, that was considered a so-called off-vintage was it was cooler, and and there was a lot of damage to the grapes, and so it was during during blossoming and fruiting season. So kind of while the grapes were were ripening, there were there were things that affected how they grew and how many grapes grew, and so a lot of people sort of assumed, and I think winemakers struggled really hard to make good wine in 2011 um, because of the challenges that they were faced with. There was a lot of botrytis, which is rot um, in the grapes. And if you're not really careful about cleaning up the grapes or picking only the grapes that don't have botrytis, it can absolutely affect the taste of the wine. But the smart producers and the people with a lot of experience, they know how to deal with difficult vintages and 
and they will just make la- they'll, they'll just make less wine and but it will still be really good wine and i think like 2011 has has proven that point where at the beginning everyone assumed that the wine was not going to be very good it wasn't going to be very ripe it was going to be sort of more earthy and, and herbal because of the coolness but the really good winemakers actually made beautiful wines that have been shown to age really well and it's interesting that if you try some of those 2011s now you'll be surprised at how good they can be um so it, it gets debatable i guess is, is sort of my long and short of that it gets debatable in terms of what is a good vintage and what is a bad vintage um there are beautiful 2011s what i will say after that is obviously we in Napa and Sonoma, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016 were all beautiful vintages. And um, we were in a drought, which California often is. And yet those vintages were really great weather-wise in other ways. And so those are considered all pretty amazing vintages, um, depending I mean, there's slight variations that you can generalize about, um, but those were pretty remarkable vintages. And then 17, we had fires up here, and uh, what happened that vintage depended on whether you were able to pick your grapes before or after the fires and how much smoke you may have had on the grapes. But you know, those fires were in October, a lot of things like Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, a lot of even Cabernet was already picked. And so that that's where it starts to get tricky because some vintages you assume, well, there were fires, so all the wine's bad. And that's very far from the truth if you were on the ground and you really knew what you were doing. So I would say, you know, the 17s that I've had don't show any smoke at all. I think most, most of the producers who know what they're doing are never going to release a wine that is smoky and disgusting. And, and, and ruin their reputation. So, um, so yeah, and then you asked me about personal favorite vintages in Napa, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, I go back to that, that string of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, incredible. I would say 13 has always been a favorite um, because of what I was hearing, both hearing from winemakers during that the winemaking process, but also what I've seen and tasted since then. And 13 was just a remarkable vintage in terms of structure and ageability. And so the wines had great fruit and really, you know, it was a, it was a relatively easy year in terms of weather and there was no earthquakes, there was no fire. <laughs> like, we'll look back on those as like simpler times. And, um, but 13 has, has remained one of those vintages that you're like, okay, not only are the wines delicious, but they're going to last. And so they that's really a standout vintage for me. Now, you had mentioned like, being in a, a drought. And something that I think is really interesting is that winemakers want the vines to struggle a little bit because the fruit is so much more complex. Can we talk a little bit about that? And then you also mentioned botrytis. Can you explain what that is and how winemakers combat that? Yeah, I can. Yeah, sure. Of course. Um, Let's see. So the first one was about drought and, and having vines struggle so yeah i mean we live in california we don't get a lot of rain um our growing season part of the reason grapes do so well wine grapes do so well is because we have kind of a mediterranean climate we don't get a lot of rain during the growing season so the grapes once they're going they they're pretty undisturbed um which is why it's a beautiful place to grow wine. But we do have the challenge of not a lot of water. So when it does rain, uh, growers have to be very smart about reservoirs and, and you know having the sources of water to get through harvest if it's, it's really dry and really hot. Now, most of the time, our growing seasons are moderate enough that grapes are fine without a lot of water between, you know, with the last rain and by the time they're picked. It's only when there's heat spikes that sometimes growers have to add a little bit of water just to get them to that next place 
without having to pick them before they're really not 100% ripe. So the struggle, um, yeah, grapes do like, you know, the struggle, they can struggle. They're, they're, it's a really hardy plant. Um, and I think more and more growers, especially as their vines are established, do try to go to a dry farming um, methodology. And so they don't really need a lot of water. Uh, I think there was a period of time, kind of 80s, 90s, sort of the, you know, where we were really still growing a, a wine industry, that irrigation was considered very important and you wanted really plump, juicy grapes uh, by the time that you picked them to make wine. I think over time, winemakers are realizing they, they don't want that. They, they do want more acidity. They want more structure. They don't need the grapes to be full of water. And so I do think some of the water usage has, has really changed. Um, as people try to adapt to drought and, and using less water. And most grapes are fine. Um, I think, you know, Nap and Sonoma have done a good job of adapting. So um, a lot of what, when you hear that the grapes that struggle, you know, are kind of the, make the best grapes, sometimes that they mean by that is more where they're planted. So it's not as much a function of water as a function of, maybe a hillside location or a mountain location versus valley floor. And so some of that is struggling because the soils are maybe not as rich and compacted. And so the vine, the vines have to dig a little bit deeper to get water, to get nutrients. And you find that sometimes the grapes are a little bit more concentrated and structured and interesting as a result of that struggle. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's, that's kind of what most people are talking about. And then detritus is, is a, is a mold. It's basically like, you know, when grapes just start to go off and usually that's because of they've been wet um, and they start to, they start to rot. And so detritus uh, is not something you want in your wine um, unless you're specifically making a dessert wine that uses the detritus as part of its flavor and, and sweetness. Interesting. What are some of the last varietals to pick? Because you had mentioned 2017, it was October. Um, I had actually flown out the morning that the fires started in 2017. What are some of the varietals that would have been most at risk at st of still being on the vine and needing to be picked? Mostly Cabernet uh, and, and other Bordeaux varieties. So Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Malbec, Petit Verdot. Even Merlot, to some extent, would would potentially still be uh, not quite ripe enough to pick, um, and a lot of those were also on hillside locations. So um, those were those were really the only things that hadn't been picked, to my knowledge. I mean, maybe some other kind of hardier reds, like Petit Syrah or Zinfandel, but even I, I think most producers had picked things like that. So. I think a lot of what was left was really hillside mountain Cabernet that just takes longer to ripen. And, you know, to be fair, a lot of the 2017 Cabernets, even from some of those locations were not really affected by smoke. It depended where you were. So places like Mount Veeder were very hard hit um, in 17 in terms of smoke, but they also had active fires around them. So, Sometimes it was smoke, but sometimes it was like, how long did the smoke sit there and how intense was it versus just kind of a cloud of smoke that's just lingering in the air and goes away. So there's yeah. still a lot of research being done about how smoke affects grapes. And that's, you know, very top of mind for producers in California and I'm sure places like Australia as well is, is what, where does smoke taint or where does smoke, smokiness, um, how how can you fix it or or what is its long range impact on a grape and how much how much does there need to be there before you have to worry we're learning all these things as we go that's really interesting especially you know what you said about the the grapes that i mean were mostly picked but still potentially could have been on the vine having thicker skins like i'm a huge fan of mount veeder lately 
And it's just such a big wine. So it'd be interesting to know how, if it's like a smaller amount of smoke, if it actually really affects it or, or not, because it's just so um, concentrated. Yeah. I think with Cabernet, I mean, all, all those producers are constantly doing, they're looking at those wines, right? So if they did, if they did pick those grapes and put them in barrels, they, those wines are probably still in barrel to some extent. Um, and so you have a long time with Cabernet in terms of aging. And I'm sure the producers are going back again and again and again and analyzing, is there smoke? Does it taste like smoke? Is, you know, they can, they can have it, um, you know, lab tested for, for smoke taint. And do they need to adjust that or, or is it going to be, is it going to be fine? So I think the people who, who went to the trouble to, to age the wines are constantly tasting it to see, to see what's happening. Now I'm always looking for amazing value in wines and you are fans of some amazing small producers. What are some of your go-to wineries for exceptional wine, but maybe not breaking the bank? Well, that's always it's a broad hard. question. Right. I mean, it, it depends what you define by value, too, which is really hard uh, because, you know, a $20 Cabernet, that's great value. If it's if it's well made, a $20 Sauvignon Blanc, people maybe don't feel $20 is value. I, it's so hard depending on what you're looking for and who made it. But, but one of my favorite wines, um, especially this time of year, as we start to get into warmer weather, is Massacan. And uh, so Massican is the side project of a winemaker named um, Dan Petrosky, who's the winemaker at Larkmead, which is a Napa cab-focused producer in Calistoga. And his side project, he's doing something he really loves, which is kind of white wines inspired by northern Italy. So the wines are all, you know, in the $20, $30 price range, and they're fresh and fruity and high acid and and you can drink them at lunch and not feel horrible. You can drink them before dinner. You can drink them with food. Like they're just a great go-to wine. And he makes both a Sauvignon Blanc and a Chardonnay, but then he does these white blends that are Tokai Friani and Ebola Giala. And um, they're just really fun, delicious wines. So that's, you know, and that's a Napa producer. So that's somebody whose day, day job is making very high-end Cabernet at, at, you know, cab prices, who is offering value kind of in, in something he loves to drink um, for, for other people. And, and actually, that's been kind of my, my hobby right now is to find other people doing things like that. <laughs> and I've written about some of them. But um, there's a lot of value in side projects and, and fun things that people are just trying out in places like Napa and Sonoma. And so Maskin's, you know, kind of the, the first that I always think of, but there's one, um, there's another one that I think you and I had talked about at one point um, that is based around Petite Syrah and it's called Mountain Tides Wine Company. And it's uh, a winemaker who had a day job and now he's focusing on this full time. He's based in Napa and he goes all around California to just find these exceptional places for Petite Syrah. And then he ma he's making three or four of them as well as a rosé. And the wines are all, again, like, you know, under $40 kind of price point. He's trying to make them with some elegance um, and some classic structure. And, and yet they're really accessible. So I love stuff like that. Um, I think it's just, it's just, it's again, that entrepreneurialism that happens in California. And it's also a way for, for you to just find different types of wines that, that are at a price point that you can feel good about experimenting. Absolutely. Shifting to the other side of things, instead of looking for, well, I guess using the word value is relative, but say 20 to $30 to cult wines that can go for hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a bottle. What is a cult wine and are they really worth the money per bottle? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's just such a loaded question. But um, <laughs> look, I mean, here's, here's what I love about my job is I, 
wine enthusiasts, we taste everything that, that is submitted to us. So we taste, you know, some of these wines that I've just described to you. We taste things that you can find at a supermarket. And we also taste what you're describing as, as cult wines, these wines that can cost $200, $300, $400, whatever. And, you know, so you're constantly, and again, like, I'm, I don't know the price when I'm tasting these wines, but certainly it's always really interesting to see how you like certain wines and, and then what they do cost. And, and I will say that oftentimes the wines that are really expensive do merit that. I mean, they are made at such a high quality level that I don't, I don't really take issue with what they're charging necessarily. And they're very small quantity. They're usually from a very small piece of land. Sometimes there's great history there. Sometimes the winery has aged the wine for a very long time. Um, I think there is just such an attention to detail from every, you know, every part of the winemaking process and growing wine growing process that I understand why sometimes these wines cost what they do. There's a lot of labor involved, um, a lot of farming costs, a lot of hand labor and attention to detail. So, so it's not always that people just have a blank piece of paper and make up a number. Like there, there are real costs that go into these cult wines. Now, of course, you know, it's a market based system. And so a lot of it is supply demand as well. Like they're very small supply and there's a lot of demand, whether it's because of the winery's history or their winemaker or the scores that they get consistently um, or the vineyards that they're working with that people love. So it's it's really hard to, to just say, yes, they're worth that money or no, they're not worth that money. It depends on the wine. I do yeah. think there's, there's many wines that I will say, you know, are worth what they are charging because of, of all those things that I just described. Um, there's some that are taking advantage of, <laughs> of people and, uh, and maybe are not worth quite as much as they say. And some of that is marketing, right? I mean, it's a luxury product. Sometimes it's marketing. Sometimes it's who your audience is. It's, um, Maybe it's your visitor experience and people just never forget it and they, they have a connection to you and they'll pay whatever it is. I don't know. Um, so, I yeah, it's it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I knew that was a loaded question going in. I was just curious from a wine critic's perspective. Um, my husband and I had the, um, the fortune of going to Promontory last time we were, we were up that way. And um, it was such an amazing experience. So, yeah, yeah it, it just like you said, sometimes just the experience or what goes into it or the, you know, the beauty of the, I mean, I don't know if you've been to that one particular. I'm sure you have, but it's just breathtaking. Yeah, no, I have, and I, I agree with you. And it's an, an incredible, you know. And, th and there again, not only is it, you know, a very specific, luxurious visitor experience, but the vineyard itself is a stunning piece of land that there's no doubt in my mind is incredibly expensive to farm, let alone to own. So. You, you just, yeah, you have to think about all those things that go into why something costs what it costs. And, and with, with wine, it, there's, there's a lot of cost to making wine, to making really, really high-end wine. Absolutely. Uh, something that you touched on briefly earlier, uh, you know, so my husband loves cab, uh, but sometimes complains that certain Napa cabs are a little bit too big and extracted. What started the trend of making these really big, opulent wines? And do you see a, a trend of shifting that direction? Or do you think that that's something that's, that's there to stay in Napa? So yeah, I think I think what what people really like to point to in terms of Napa Cab getting kind of too big and extracted, very ripe, kind of in style, is media attention and scores. And you know, a lot of people always sort of pinpoint that to Robert Parker, and he rewarded a lot of these these big extracted wines, very high points. And I think that's been kind of like the the easy way to sort of say, oh well, it, it was that. 
um, and producers responded and just then sort of compete with each other almost of like how big, how extracted, how, you know, how high can you get the scores? And, and maybe that was just where we were as a wine consumer at that period of time that we needed kind of big flavors to really start to pay attention to wine. I don't know. It's sort of like a chicken egg, like who, where does it start? Where does it end? Um, I mean, there's no doubt that people were buying and enjoying those wines and still do. I mean, there's, there's lots of wines that are, um, still made in that style for sure. I think though, as we've progressed as wine consumers and as winemakers have progressed in their understanding and knowledge of what they like and what they've tasted. And also as sites have gotten more specific, I mean, much more of the farming has gotten more precise and sustainable and, and really thinking about the growing, how the growing impacts, what the flavors of the wine will be. I think that you're, there's just more room for different styles now. And so I think you've got, You've got classic producers that have always been, you know, so-called less ripe style or less rich style, more of an elegant style who never change. And they're still here and they still have lots of followers and maybe now they're gaining new followers. Um, and, and yet I still think there's plenty of people who like a big, rich Cabernet. And, and if they didn't, uh, the producers couldn't keep making them. So. I think there's room for everything and everyone, and you just sort of have to find who you like. Yeah, definitely. So moving on to some other trends in wine country over the years, with all of the consolidation in Napa and you know having these big names buying up vineyards and wineries like Gallo, the largest family-owned winery, purchasing stagecoach vineyards, which is recognized as producing some of the highest quality grapes in Napa. Do you think that it's becoming too commercialized? Well, you know, I think, I think, of course, we always worry about the big getting bigger and, and impacting the small. And we want diversity of, like we were just saying, like diversity of styles, you want diversity of price points, you want diversity of big versus small the the hard part is it is just so hard to do this as a small producer um i mean to own a piece of land like stagecoach which is planted to a lot of acreage of grapes they're expensive to farm um you know you need to have a home for those grapes and be able to sell the wine and so i you know some commercialization is just inevitable and it's not always bad. I mean, I think Gallo, for example, has has done a really good job with some of these vineyard acquisitions. I mean, they own Monterosso and Sonoma as well, and they've owned that longer. And I think, you know, there's a lot of time and investment and, and money spent on, on making sure that these vineyards are in top form. And sometimes a smaller owner can't, just can't keep that up. So I think some some of that is good and it also allows for a range of price points right because they can subsidize themselves you know expensive bottles can pay for for less expensive bottles um but i still find that there's a lot of small producers and a lot of entrepreneurship happening which we've you know touched on several times it's hard for people in Napa and sonoma younger people certainly starting out to buy land I mean, the land costs is really the hardest part at this point. They can, and the grape costs as well. And so that's why I think you're finding that sometimes people are going to less expensive types of grapes or less expensive regions of California um, or other parts of the U.S. to make wine because Napa and Sonoma are getting very expensive um, and very hard to, hard to own anything, you know, long term. Um, Definitely. You know, and, and obviously in, in the in the current day, like that's everybody's worried about that. Yeah, I personally love less commercialized and smaller owned wineries, but I've only been exposed to a, honestly a really small handful of them. So what are some of your favorite and what's the be- best way to get access to these smaller producer wines? Oh, well, I, I mean... Most people, especially smaller producers, are going to be selling direct. And so certainly getting to know them and, and following either their website or 
Twitter account or social media is helpful to get to know them and get a sense of personality. I mean, there are brands that have done a really good job of that. Belden Barnes is one of them who's based on Sonoma Mountain. They, it's a, it's a husband and wife, small family that, you know, own this vineyard and are, are making a range of wines from the vineyard from Pinot Noir to Syrah to Sauvignon Blanc to a rosé and now rosé in cans. Um, you know, they're one, a very fun place to visit, uh, very much off the beaten path. You have to go up a windy road behind the town of Glen Ellen, but when you're there, you're in the vineyard and in their barn and it's, it's just very real and, and very authentic and you'll, you know, you can try the wines, but you can also just wander around the vineyards and really take in a sense of nature, have a getaway. I think that's what people are looking for more and more. Um, you know, uh, like come to wine country and actually be in the vine. So, I mean, that, that lines up perfectly for just the last question that I have for you. So for listeners out there that do want to travel to wine country and maximize that experience, especially with the smaller producers out there, what would you recommend? Like, oh. for instance, if, if I had one week to spend in wine country, where, where would you go if you were me wanting those like um, more intimate uh, experiences rather than, like you said, just driving down Highway 29 and seeing familiar names? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I get asked that question a lot, even by just close family members and friends who, who want to do something like that. And my questions are always sort of like, well, what do you like? Um, you know, how many places do you want to go in a day? How much driving do you want to do? And so, and is this your first time um, or your 10th time or your 20th time to wine country? Because certainly, I mean, if you've never been to Napa Valley, I think driving down Highway 29 and seeing all those famous names is a must. Like you should go to Robert Mondavi Winery and you should go to Heights Cellars and you should go to Joseph Phelps and, you know, some of these just classic very famous places that have put Napa Valley on the, on the map and they offer good experiences as well. And you can have as big or small an experience as you want at most of these wineries. Um, for, you know, for you, if you were coming up here and for a week, a week is a long time. You could do Napa and Sonoma very easily within a week and really take your time, visit maybe two places a day. And I would probably just, give you an itinerary that that made sense in terms of driving because the the tricky thing in Sonoma is that people don't realize the distances sometimes between places so I could tell you to go to Scribe Winery that is just outside the town of Sonoma and it's a very popular place it's it's very fun it's very food oriented people think of it as just like a getaway from San Francisco or or the greater Bay Area and they can just hang out for a day. Um, that would be a really fun place to go for half the day. And then, you know, the next place I would recommend, I would probably not be up in Healdsburg because that's probably an hour drive. And you may not want to drive an hour and then go back to San Francisco, for example. Um, so a lot of times it's distance uh, driven. And that was the same. I mean, you could go to some place in Stag's Leap. Like you could go to Stag's Leap Wine Cellars. And it would take you, it could take you 45 minutes to an hour to get up to Calistoga just because the distances. So I usually cluster visits depending, you know, so people can visit and not have to be in the car so much. Um, but there's so many. I mean, there's a lot of great places to visit. And I would say, you know, in Napa, going up Highway 29 and down um, the Silverado Trail is just a great way to get a lay of the land. And in Sonoma, I often tell people to start and, you know, just as something they can, they can actually bite off is, is some like a place like Russian River Valley and start maybe in Healdsburg and you wander around West Side Road to places like William Salem or Augusta or Joseph Swan or Hartford Court and you end up eventually in Sebastopol. Um, which, where you could eat, you know, you could eat a meal or visit some other places. So it's, uh, it's often more driven by how you, how you get around than the actual places. That makes total sense. It is such a big area to navigate for sure. 
Yeah, they're big. They're big areas, um, and, and you know, and that's why multiple visits is usually a good call. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with recommending multiple visits to Sonoma and Nampa. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your, your time today, Virginia. I really appreciate you going into uh, into depth on Napa and Sonoma and some different varietals and vintages. Uh, this is definitely incredibly helpful. I'll be sure to put your social media link also in the descriptor of this since you do tend to write about smaller producers a lot so that people can follow that and, and get your recommendations for sure. Absolutely. Happy to happy to have the conversation and take care. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a rating. I'm also so excited to announce our new Corkit Club, which shares exclusive content with our members. To join, you simply text the words Corkit to 55444. Again, that's Corkit to 55444, and you will be the first to access this special member content that we have created just for you. Also, be sure to follow our journey on Instagram at Everyday Food and Wine, as well as our incredible guest for Jenny Boone. That's at V-I-R-G-I-N-I-E-B-O-O-N-E. Please join me next time where I have the pleasure of speaking with a man who discusses drinking a 150-year-old shipwrecked bottle of wine with William Shatner, a man who drank tequila and arm wrestled with The Rock, and is highly respected in the food and wine world as a senior wine editor for Food and Wine magazine, Ray Isle. 